Greetings, church. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders at Church in the Square. Among so many things that we could begin by saying this week, I simply want to say, don't grow weary in doing good. That's a promise, a command, a commission from the Apostle Paul to the Galatian church. And the promise in all of that was that at the proper time, if we continue to not grow weary in doing good, the promise is that at a particular time, at just the right time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. And only the Lord knows what that harvest will be through such a trying, challenging, and unprecedented time. But don't grow weary in doing good. I have heard so many stories of groups and individuals caring for one another well, whether it's checking in by simply making a phone call or by running to the grocery store and reaching out and seeing if someone needs anything. I think this is what it means to be the church. This is what it means to care for one another well, to shoulder one another's burdens. And so don't, don't grow weary in that. Be encouraged. The Lord is at work even in the midst of uh, this. And I believe that even the passage of scripture we'll be looking at today will help us to consider that. Now we realize that not everybody is in a group. And so these weekly uh, liturgies are meant uh, to help you perhaps individually to grow in your walk with Jesus as you walk through the different elements or even as a family together when you gather during the week. But in particular, they're designed for, for groups. And so if you are not part of a group, this is the way that we see discipleship, the primary means of discipleship at Church in the Square. So if you're not in a group, reach out to Christina Wolken um, and send her a note. She'll be happy to connect you with a group, even uh, through this particular season. Her, her email is christina at churchinthesquare.com. Groups will continue to be our primary means of discipleship, even through COVID-19 crisis, because Jesus didn't build his church for only seasons of comfort and peace, but for all times, for all of life, um, we are meant to be in a kind of community and group like this, that we might shoulder each other's burdens well, might not grow weary in doing good uh, together. And so we'd love for everyone, even now, to be in a group. We believe this is the way, even through this, that we will grow together. Also want to let you know that as a, a church, our first sort of all church opportunity to see and walk through, see one another and walk through something together will be this Thursday. Our deacons will be hosting a uh, Zoom prayer gathering on Thursday, the 26th at 8 p.m. We hope that this will become a weekly occurrence. Login information will be available uh, and coming on our website as well as in our Wednesday email. So please pay attention to that and know that our deacons, our elders, our group leaders have been getting on the phone, have been uh, doing video conferencing, praying, thinking, and asking for the Lord's great grace and um, care for us through, through this time. So let's continue to hold one another in prayer, continue to call one another, continue to reach out and care for one another well through this as we trust that, that the Lord is at work uh, even in this. And so with that being said, please open up your Bibles to Lamentations chapter 4. Lamentations chapter 4. Can you imagine, we started uh, <laughs> Lamentations just a few weeks ago, of course, long before we knew that uh, these sort of unprecedented times would be our new reality, but the Lord, the Lord knew. And by His providence, we've been learning to lament. And this, this book, Lamentations, and these five poems have been giving us language for crying out, language for lament, and even biblical permission if you will, to speak with candidness yet humility toward God 
So let, let's remember, in this particular context, this particular season, near the very beginning of the 6th century BC, God's people had been sinning grievously for centuries. Now they are underneath the consequence of God's holy justice and his wrath, and they begin to cry out to him. They're instructed to do so. And yet, even as they cry out in the middle of this difficulty and suffering, they don't disagree with God. They understood that the calamity that they were experiencing was God's righteousness made plain to them. It was his accurate response to their sin. See, so they they cry out to God, but they don't disagree with him. They cry out, but they don't disagree. I think that's a familiar tension to us today, isn't it? See, we're crying out, but we don't necessarily disagree. Whether the pressure that we're feeling is the confinement of our homes or the closing of schools or the increase of work, perhaps for many of us, or in much more severe instances, the loss of a job, the sickness, um, this virus hitting close to home, or for, for those of us, maybe a loved one in particular is vulnerable, has already been exposed to the coronavirus, or maybe it's those of you who are healthcare workers or first responders on the very front lines of care. See, in all of this, in the great and the small, we cry out to God, and yet the measures being taken, we trust are for the common good. We don't, we don't disagree in many respects with some of the confinements and constraints and challenges that we face. See, we cry out, but we don't disagree. In all of this, crying out, yet agreement, We should be responding like followers of Jesus, like Christians. See, followers of Jesus do not take universal or global issues lightly. The scriptures, in fact, teach us that through such calamity, we are still underneath the sovereign hand of God. As such, here's here's by way of sort of framing our thinking. How should we be thinking? How should we be responding? First, I think we should repent. This certainly is not to say that the um, COVID-19 crisis is a direct result of God's judgment upon the world and certainly not against individuals. Yet we must be confessing that this is really revealing a lot. I wonder if, if like me, you have been experiencing just this almost revelation of, I, I don't confess and really trust the Lord enough. I don't pray to the Lord enough. I don't always believe that he is totally in control. I've even thought about many of you and worried because I haven't seen you face to face and I long to see you face to face. I worry about you in a fresh way, which, which really is just a result of me not trusting that the Lord ultimately cares for you all. See, we don't find complete hope in him always. And therefore, for whatever reason, whatever is going on, it is a good call for us to repent, to cry out to God, to seek forgiveness, to come clean, as it were, before a holy and righteous God. And so in that, we don't just repent, but we also look to God. See, in our repentance, we should receive his forgiveness and by his word, see that all that he, all that he is doing and be rightly established in hope in him. See, one way I think that we can practice this spiritual discipline is by going to God and his word more than we go to the news. Isn't it real that like every morning we wake up, every situation that we hear about, we go to the news, we go to social media, we try to intake new information, latest information. I know I'm guilty of this, going and trying to take in news consistently, constantly through the day because things seem to be changing from minute to minute. But in all of that, the question obviously for us is, are we going to God as much? 
Are we going to God the way that we continue to go to the headlines? See, because whatever we find in the headlines was known in God's mind long before a publisher approved that script. So we should look to God. We should repent. We should look to God. But thirdly, we should care for one another. See, as we repent, we look to God. We should also look to one another. See, in crying out, we're not stagnant. We don't just simply sit on our hands. As followers of Jesus, we seek the shalom and peace and well-being of our family, of our friends, our neighbors, our group, our church family. We should care for one another in the midst of all of this. See, failing in these rhythms, which actually, when you think about it, they're not new to a crisis or to some pandemic, right? These are everyday rhythms of the life of a Christian. See, we, we, if we don't do these, if we fail in these rhythms, we will grow hopeless. And hopelessness is what settles down and what becomes sort of the foundational reality of Lamentations 4. And so what lies before us in this chapter will be incredibly helpful in what lies before us as we stay at home, yet stay on mission. And so let's go to God and ask for his help as we come to Lamentations chapter 4. Heavenly Father, we do cry out to you. I cry out to you as one in a community. I cry out to you individually. I cry out to you as a fellow follower of Jesus, along with my brothers and sisters. Father, we need your help. Father, see us, help us, rescue us, save us, give us hope, give us peace, ground us in your reality, the reality of who you are. Help us to see you, help us to acknowledge you. Father, help our minds to be stayed on you. Forgive us for the ways we are consistently and constantly drawn away. We ask for your peace in our world. There is great need, Father. There's much confusion and fear and sickness. And so we know that when these things happen, we should be crying out to you. So help us, Father, that our reflex in all of this would be to worship, would be to cry out to you. I pray for my brothers and sisters scattered throughout the northwest side of the city and beyond who are gathering in groups or gathering around family tables, gathering as they are staying at home, gathering with the reality of the loss of a job, gathering with the reality of of immense amount of financial pressure, gathering around your word in, in a new reality of even feeling sick and wondering what that feeling is or hearing that a loved one has been exposed to the coronavirus or are worrying about one who is more vulnerable. Father, we need your peace. And we trust that your peace is seen, it is savored through your word. So help us as we come to your word to be grounded in that wonderful truth, the truth of your peace that goes beyond comprehension. And help us, Father, to repent. Help us to look to you. Help us even through this to care for one another well, we ask in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, Amen. Well, if you remember in Lamentations 3, there was a lot of hope, uh, but it's, it's going to be short-lived. See, remember, these were the most helpful words in all of Lamentations. These collection of five poems seem to peak for us in poem number three. The strong man, who was the primary speaker in poem number three, cries out from the depths of his despair. Look, look back just a few verses before chapter four, Lamentations 3, 22 through 24. The strong man says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. 
His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. He calls upon the covenant faithfulness and affection of Yahweh, his judge and his rescuer. This assurance leads him to quote the Lord directly. It's the only place in the entire book where we have the recorded words of God. Lamentations 3, 57, look at it. You came near. When I called on you, you said, do not fear. As Christians, this is a familiar and comforting portion of the book of Lamentations, isn't it? This is probably one of the rare moments where we felt like, yeah, this this sounds right. This sounds familiar to me. The other parts of Lamentations, well, that's a kind of spiritual language and lament that's often very foreign to us. It's dismal, it's sorrowful, and seemingly without joy and faith. And so we are naturally drawn to this kind of language we read in Lamentations 3. We naturally expect then, because we're so familiar with it, and because I think we are often misguided about what the scriptures are all about and how something is communicated in the scriptures, and so we, we can naturally expect that this high, this crescendo, if you will, in Lamentations 3 will continue to ascend, will continue to bring hope for the duration of these following two poems. Because this is how a good story happens, right? I mean, problems take place, hope is introduced, they ride off into the sunset, right? If that's our expectation, Lamentations 4 will be immensely disappointing to us. You see, when we get into Lamentations 4, it's as if the hope that you and I have just recounted from chapter 3 is completely unknown to the narrator of chapter 4. From the very first line, look at it with me. Lamentations 4 verses 1 through 2. How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold. How they are regarded as earthen pots. The work of a potter's hand. The start of this lament should take us back to the first two poems. See, each poem, one and two, begin exactly the same way, with this dirge of death, this howling how, if you will. In Hebrew, it's the word ekha, that first word how, ekha. Though death is not explicit, this type of beginning, and this word in particular, causes the weight of death to rest heavy upon the entire fourth poem. See, this metaphorical language communicates the impossible. Pure gold doesn't change. Pure gold doesn't tarnish. It doesn't darken or grow dim. See, what the, poem, what the poet is telling us is that the inconceivable has happened. Jerusalem, this glorious and shining city of God's people, has grown dim. Her luster is a memory where once the beauty of the city, both in its people and civil splendors, seemed eternal and untouchable, now their worth is diminishing, and people are scattered like an afterthought. What was precious now appears worthless. This unidentified narrator seems distant and cold, doesn't he? But still has this knowledge of what's going on within Jerusalem, within this situation. See, compared with the advocacy that we heard in, uh, for Jerusalem in poem 
two, the, the vulnerability that we heard in, in poem three. Poem four gives us a picture of emotional resignation, of faithlessness, of joylessness. The, the narrator begins to survey and tour the city, sort of looks around and describes for us what he sees and what is taking place. And it's not pretty. Look at verse three. Even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. We now begin to see an unraveling, not simply of this precious picture of a city, but the moral fabric or the ground beneath God's people is dissolving. Human mothers are compared to jackals and ostriches. Jackals, you see, as the poet tells us, at least feed their children. Ostriches, however, were notorious for neglecting their children. And the speaker compares the mothers of Jerusalem with them. As a result, children are going hungry. Even to this graphical point, infants' tongues are sticking to the roofs of their mouths from thirst, and children are begging for food, and, and hear this, no one is feeding them. What is more pitiful and broken than the knowledge and picture of a child going hungry and people walking by disconnected, disinterested, and impassioned for them? In hopelessness and fear, we're tempted to shut down. People are hoarding food. People are withholding from the most vulnerable. People are becoming increasingly self-centered. Church, hopelessness does this. Hopelessness causes us to become incredibly selfish, perhaps out of fear, perhaps out of pride, perhaps out of scarcity, perhaps out of this for the sake of survival, or perhaps a, a challenging situation that we face is merely revealing what was always beneath the surface. For whatever reason, hopelessness breeds selfishness. It's our way of trying to reclaim control and power and joy and stability and life in the middle of desolation. How do you respond? The text begs the question from us. The poet begs this question in his poetic license. How do you respond? When, when fear and, and hopelessness seem to have dominated the headlines, when the bleak outlook of the financial markets never seem to recover, when grocery store shelves are empty, when you're quarantined from your community, when the tangible expressions of your freedom are seemingly taken away, we may not be in the exact same space and situation as Jerusalem in the 6th century BC, but the principles apply, don't they? If we have resources right now, let, let's, let's, let's just bring this down to our everyday, right now, what's going on with us. If you have resources, you can be tempted to hunker down. What, a, what an idea that is that keeps getting thrown. You can be hunkered down. You can take care of self and simply survive and wait for all of this to pass. If you have resource, you can do this. All of this may be wisdom. Or it may be 
that selfishness is rearing its ugly head in the face of fear, lack of control, and the unknown. If you don't have resources, you can be tempted too. Perhaps to grow angry or resentful or bitter towards your brothers and sisters or your neighbor who you see has more than you. Or pride. You begin to not share what, you, what little you have with others or you begin to not even share your needs with your brothers and sisters because you will be seen as, as perhaps broken or not enough or you're fearful of that. See, with or without, selfishness has this magnetism which sucks us in, especially in times of scarcity and fear. That's what let a man named Agur, son of Z- Jacob, to write these words in Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9. Hear this. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. With or without, how do you respond in fear, in scarcity, in hopelessness? You see, selfishness destroys us. Watch as we come to verses 5 through 9, how the city continues to crumble underneath the weight of their own sinfulness. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruit of the field. Not only are things bad in Jerusalem's situation, but they're dragging on. The observing narrator tells us that notorious Sodom, a people who sinned wickedly against the Lord and his people, they received a swift punishment. Jerusalem suffers slowly. This is the case because their sin multiplies as sin does. See, in particular, unrepentant sin always leads to more sin. Church, please hear this. My brothers and my sisters, hear this. Unrepentant sin always leads to more sin. And so if our correction or response to sin and its righteous consequence is to sin again, things will only get worse. Pain will only drag on. In other words, sinning will never make things better. Disobedience never corrects disobedience. Wrath persists. And at the peak of this reality, the mothers of Jerusalem fall to the lowest point we find anywhere in Lamentations. Look at verse 10. The hands of compassionate women 
have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. Consequence and the the desolation of beauty have led to a famine and utter scarcity. And in a repulsive act of utter selfishness, mothers do not simply neglect feeding their kids, they become cannibals. And these, the narrator tells us, were the compassionate women. Selfishness literally destroys us. Remember, the demise of the city is not circumstantial. They have not simply fallen on hard times. God is judging his people in righteousness, in wrath, as a result of centuries of disobedience and covenant breaking. That's what the narrator now reminds us of in verse 11. Look at it. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. All of this desolation and brokenness is part of the consequence of sin. In Lamentations, we're not simply learning language for lament, but we are also called to acknowledge the morbidity and brokenness of our sin. See, at first blush, we may be shocked by God's wrath, like this is too much. But that's only because we are usually unaffected by our sin. We are tempted to hide behind what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, 20th century German theologian, called cheap grace. Bonhoeffer explained this idea in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. Hear this. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. You see, we're tempted to move really quickly from sin to restoration, aren't we? We don't want to lament our sin. We don't want to deeply consider it. This this is even revealed in the way we want to quickly look at a friend, quickly look at our spouse, quickly even look at our children, just say we're good, right? And move on as if there is not a price to be paid. We don't lament our sin. We don't grieve our iniquity. We're, we're, we're not broken by our own covenant breaking. What lamentations I trust by God's grace is doing for us in our sin is slowing us down. And this slowing down, this deep consideration actually has the opposite effect that we believe that it will. We think that it will hurt us, but it actually, in slowing down and rightly contemplating our sin, we discover a fresh joy. There is joy in this. This was true of Israel. They were so quick and they were not devastated by their sin. From the mothers of the streets into the prophets, priests, and elders, the leaders and caretakers of God's people, everyone was culpable. Look at verse 12. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed In the midst of her, the blood of the righteous, they wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. It was widely understood that the brilliance of Jerusalem and her God, 
could not be easily handled. See, notice the kings of the earth couldn't believe it. Like the idea that Jerusalem had fallen, no one on the planet could fathom how God's people had been so completely been t- overtaken by her adversaries. Scholar Kathleen O'Connor, who I've been happy to quote c- consistently, constantly, if you will, through this, her, her commentary is exceptional around Lamentations. Here's what she says about this. The, the invasion of Jerusalem is unthinkable because it is God's chosen city, specifically protected God's dwelling place, the place of divine rest. The unimaginable has occurred and the world wonders at God's abandonment of the city. You see, according to the enemies of Israel, God has seemingly abandoned his people. The poet explains, the seemingly impossible destruction has taken place as a result of sin. Did you see that in verse 13? But it's not just sins in general. It's the specific reason such conquest has holistically taken place throughout this shining city. It's because of the sins of her spiritual leaders, the prophets and the priests. We've already been told that the prophets spread false visions in Lamentations 2.14. And through this siege and subsequent famine, their iniquities persist. In fact, they were so riddled with sin, the poet describes it as though their garments were filled with blood and people yelled at them to keep their distance. It's like this wicked, albeit in our immediate time, somewhat kind of hilarious. It's this spiritual social distancing. This is to say, those who had been committed to the point, committed by God to the point of caring for, to point people toward the Lord, to prepare people for the Lord, those people commissioned to do just that now turn inwardly and were dedicated to their own well-being. The prophets and priests in their hopelessness turned to selfishness, and selfishness destroys us. We might say in sort of a more biblically holistic way, they were about their own glory, not the glory of God. Friends, it's easy to believe that God is only glorious when his people are glorified. We may believe that God is only glorious when his people are glorified. We may even be thinking to ourselves, That God is losing an opportunity with these other nations. As we read Lamentations, like he's missing this PR moment where he could extend his reach, where he can market himself in a palatable way and get more nations on team God. We might think he looks bad because his people, his leaders are suffering. We may even think this way about the coronavirus. God looks bad right now, we may be suggesting to ourselves, because of the calamity and death in our world. What this reveals is not that God is not glorious. This reveals a falsehood embedded deep in our own psyche. That falsehood is this. Please hear me with love. Remember, I love you. Here's what we believe. That God is only glorious when we are. That God is only glorious when we are. This idea actually has made a home within many of our prayer lives. We ask for God to grant us victory, success, good health, comfort, protection, and prosperity. And of course, what we always promise is that if and when those things come to us, we will give God credit, we'll give Him the glory, we'll give Him the honor, we'll give Him the praise. 
please hear me well. Of course, these are good things to pray for. In fact, God calls us to pray for them. However, our air is right beneath the surface. Our air, our sin in this, is in our expectations that God will receive extra or pure glory and adulation only if we are successful and thrive and receive the things for which we have prayed. That is to say, we don't think God is glorious when we are suffering, whether by consequence or circumstance. My brothers and sisters, this is a massive misunderstanding of the glory of God. His glory is never in question. His glory is never in doubt. His glory is never unwelcome. His glory is never eradicated, diminished, truncated, or deleted, or dimmed, or broken, or erased, or compromised. Rather, it is we who fail to acknowledge and see and savor the obviousness of His glory rightly. See, even in lament and sorrow and consequence, God is glorious because his holiness is front and center, even in his wrath. The prophet Isaiah makes it clear as he records God's own words this way, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, God says, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Did you notice his glory is being manifest through the furnace of affliction? Here's the point. God's glory is not dependent on yours. God's glory is not dependent on Ours. See, as consequence in Lamentations, God dismisses these leaders. Look at verse 16. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. The Lord sends away those in positions of power. They are not special They are not immune to the consequences of self-glory. These prophet, priests, and elders with no favor, with no honor. How could God do this? Let me address a, a possible contention or concern. I mean, it may seem a bit contradictory here. After all, isn't God behaving in a selfish way? Isn't he behaving selfishly in response to the selfishness of his people? Isn't this wrong of God to reject those who have rejected him? Isn't that returning one evil for another? Why can God do what we are not allowed to do? Well, we must understand, and let's make it as clear as possible. God is always about his glory. Glory is, of course, at the center of human selfishness. In selfishness, we are about our own glory. But God is righteous in his self-glory, and we are wicked if we behave in the same way about ourselves. Why? Well, first of all, let's establish what glory is. What exactly is the glory of God? One of the perhaps most helpful definitions I've come across is that the glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. It is the going public of his holiness. In other words, it is the visible display of God's worth and magnificence. This means God's glory is something we experience and perceive. It's his spectacular 
spectacular nature broadcast over and through the galaxies, his character made plain, his nature made visible, his personhood made comprehensible. If you think about it, even that's glorious. That the unknowable God makes himself known, that's glorious. That's his glory. And God is all about his glory. Did you notice from that passage in Isaiah? In fact, turn there. A couple of books back to the left. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. Look at this. My namesake, for the sake of my praise, for my own sake, for my own sake, my glory, I will not give to another. God is zealous for his own glory. In fact, he has set his glory above all things. That's the word in Psalm 8.1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. God's glory is all around us. His greatness is at the center of the universe, and you and I have been made as a part of that creation. Therefore, when God is all about his own glory, he is acting in accordance with reality. When you and I are about our own glory, we violate this order of the world. And so author Marva Don distills it down for us this way, the glory of the Christian life, or the goal, rather, of the Christian life, is that for more and more seconds of each day, what we think and do and say is to God's glory, that every moment is worship of the true God instead of various idolatries of our own making or of our own culture. That means... We pray along with John the baptizer in John 3.30, may he increase and may we decrease. Jeremiah records for us Jerusalem's final response to the consequence of her sin. As Babylon, these enemy armies that were laying waste to the people of God, the, the people of God then turn to earthly powers around them. They actually go to Pharaoh and to the Egyptian army and invite them in and ask for their protection But then God pulls the army away. Jeremiah 37, 5 through 7 says this, The army of Pharaoh had come out of Egypt, and when the Chaldeans who were besieging Jerusalem heard news about them, they withdrew from Jerusalem. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Thus shall you say to the king of Judah, who sent you to me to inquire of me, Behold, Pharaoh's army that came to help you is about to return to Egypt to its own land. And they did. And the destruction of Jerusalem was complete. It was about these recorded events that the speaker of Lamentations in Lamentations 4 finally concedes the city. Turn back to Lamentations 4 verse 17. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps. 
so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They, they lay in wait for us in the wilderness. They breathe the, the breath rather of our nostrils. The Lord's anointed was captured in their pits of whom we said under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. They looked for help in other nations. They looked for help within themselves. The final devastation even took out the one they called the Lord's anointed. The one they said was the breath of our nostrils. It was like saying he, he was the air in our lungs. The one in whom everyone placed all of their hope was their king, King Zedekiah. They said under his shadow, we shall live among the nations and it destroyed them. Selfishness destroys us. Selfishness does not produce hope. You see, what Israel is lamenting in Lamentations 4 is what you and I will be tempted by sooner or later underneath the reality of this COVID-19 crisis. It's what we are regularly tempted by in our everyday life. We will be tempted to search for hope within ourselves. But we must remember selfishness destroys us. Self preservation only produces wrath. Church, we must be so careful and diligent. For the life of the church, we have not been those who just hunker down and get through this. We have been a people of costly grace, of self-denial for the sake of God's glory and the goodness of his world. Bonhoeffer knew this. He was part of a resistance as a German against the Nazis. He even attempted to kill Hitler. So Bonhoeffer isn't simply repulsed by cheap grace. He points us to glory, teaching the beauty of costly grace, which we find only in the gospel. He continues to write, Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us costly grace, Bonhoeffer concludes, is the incarnation of God. What is deplorable, church, about our sinful self-preservation is that we are not glory incarnate. What is earth-shattering about the gospel is that glory incarnate did not preserve himself. You see, the only one who could have righteously saved himself gave himself for us. Witnessing this love, experiencing this love, knowing this love, 
This love of Jesus Christ breaks the bondage of sin and self-preservation. In Christ, then, you and I become a people who, Philippians 2 tells us, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Notice the call is to do nothing. Nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. The Christian is one who in all things considers others first, namely God, his people, and our neighbor. And this is not mere eye service. We look to someone else and say, in the power of Jesus Christ, they are more significant than me. This is not self-loathing, but a joyful self-giving act. One made possible only by the Spirit of God. In and of myself, I do not do this. In and of myself, I do not consider others. In and of myself, even when I consider others, it's because I want glory for considering others in return. Avoiding selfishness in all things, embracing humility in our view of neighbor, leads to a disposition and constancy of considering the interests and needs of others. By the way, this Philippian passage does not teach us to neglect our needs or to ignore our needs and interests, but rather, in addition to those needs, to consider the needs of others around us. See, Jesus can do this in us because Jesus did this for us. He was the one who did not count equality with God, the passage continues, a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant and being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We're told by the writer of Hebrews about the specific nature of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, which I think in seeing his nature and beholding his nature, it makes his self-giving that much more spectacular. Hebrews 1, 3, and 4 He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high heaven, become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is who died for you. This is who died for me. This is the one who would have been perfectly justified in always and only preserving and enjoying his own glory. And yet, he does not selfishly protect himself. He humbly gives himself. This is the paradox of the gospel. That's the Christ who lives in you. That's the Christ who lives in me. That's the one who quarantined himself in your soul for your good for all of eternity. In dying, Jesus, the truly glorious one, demonstrated a glory that has not been seen. A kind of glory which puts the order of the world, which was disoriented by sin, back into rights again. When Jerusalem was overtaken by the Babylonian armies, the nation of Edom laughed. They celebrated the demise of Israel. And so even through Jerusalem's suffering, even though it continues... Hope is introduced by way of a promise of justice against Edom at the close of chapter 4, verse 21. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz, but to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourselves bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you 
in exile no longer, but your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. This call to rejoice and be glad kind of comes out of nowhere. We almost don't believe it because it comes in the middle of suffering. God's glory is not dependent on ours. God's glory in this case comes by way of his holy consequence against Jerusalem, but also through his promised conquest over the enemies who derided his people. This is a gracious yet costly picture of God's continued ownership of his people. See, when all is said and done through suffering, through forgiveness, through sin, through wrath, through time, through justice, God will be glorious. His glory is without question. And it is also not without grace toward those with whom he has covenanted. He will not forget us. He will still protect us. He will still care for us. We are still his people. Are you with me? God's glory persists well beyond our sinfulness. God's glory is not diminished by our selfishness. It is put on display in that in our selfishness, he identified with us for our sake. So, we can rejoice even in suffering and hardship. We can be glad even in sorrow and gloom. Why? Because God's glory is unfettered. In fact, his glory is demonstrated in a unique way by a people who remain hopeful and self-giving in the midst of such bleak circumstances. Jerusalem's is a cautionary tale for us in Lamentations 4. By God's grace, the cross points us toward the power to live in contrast with them. Jesus' work on the cross has broken down our selfishness and self-glory, and when we live in and through suffering with humility and care for others, we demonstrate this great and costly grace of Jesus Christ, the radiance of the glory of God. And so, Heavenly Father, we ask for your help. We ask that you would make us this kind of people even now in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of difficulty and pain and hardship for whatever reason, whether it's circumstance or consequence, Father, we desire to glorify you. So by the power of Jesus, make us this kind of people who in the middle of difficulty and pain and suffering, we continue by your grace to demonstrate your goodness, your beauty, your worth, your glory, so that all of the world will know the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, Jesus Christ. Would you do this in and through us? We ask in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen.